On this week's TripCast, we'll talk about the Democratic presidential candidates descending on Texas, the state's debate over background checks for gun purchases, and a Fort Worth woman who faces a five-year prison sentence for casting a ballot that didn't count. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. Texas Southern University. Become a catalyst, a game changer, a force to be reckoned with, and the one who will make a difference in public service. We educate all of Texas. Join us at the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs at tsu.edu. And DHR Health has revolutionized the healthcare landscape of the Rio Grande Valley and continues to raise the standard of healthcare for the benefit of our South Texas community. To learn more, visit dhrhealth.com. And before we dive in, we have a goal of our own to share with you. We're aiming to rally 400 new members to join our nonprofit newsroom this fall member drive. Can you support our public interest journalism with a donation? Join now at texastribune.org slash give. All right, this is Emma Platoff here on Wednesday, September 18th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. I still want to see what the newsroom looks like with 400 more people in it. I think that'll be interesting. <laughs> well, we we're barely fit already. <laughs> <laughs> we'll report back on that. Uh, politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. We'll also be taking your questions in real time via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way using the hashtag TribCast. All right, Patrick, let's start with you. You were in Houston last week for the latest round of Democratic debates, kind of at the stage where lower-tier candidates are looking for breakout moments, and it seemed like both Texans got one. Um, But are these moments that they're glad they got almost a week later? Yeah, we'll start with Beto O'Rourke. He's definitely glad that he got the moment that he did. And this is, you could argue, the first, I think most people would agree, the first real standout moment he's had in any of the first three debates. Um, You know, he got this moment when he was asked about his recent proposal uh, of a a mandatory buyback program for uh, assault weapons. And as part of his answer, he said something that he had actually said a few days earlier, uh, you know, while campaigning in South Carolina or something like that. But it was clearly before the, the widest audience yet and got the biggest pop. And, and he answered affirmatively when asked if he, you know, wants he's, he's saying that he wants to take people's uh, assault weapons away. And he said, you know, quote, hell yes, I want to take away your uh, AK-47, AR-15. Uh, big applause uh, inside the the debate hall, and just really a, a, a big uh, you know a big moment for him in terms of getting the attention and getting the attention on an issue that he's been working really hard to, to emphasize. <laughs> Obviously, sometimes the breakout moments, as you as you noted, for like the or, or standout moments for like the wrong reasons or on issues that you'd rather not talk about. Right. Uh, but this was a breakout moment on an issue that he definitely wants to talk about, especially uh, after the the shootings in El Paso and Odessa. Um, the other uh, Texan in the race. Julian Castro um, also had a, a pretty memorable moment. Um, he, uh, you know, really interrogated Joe Biden over his health care plan, and, as, and in doing so, uh, you know, questioned Biden's memory and re- repeatedly said, I think three times, "Did you forget what you just said two minutes ago? Did you forget what you just said two minutes ago?" And there were, you even, you know, I, the reporters obviously aren't in the debate hall during these, but just watching on TV. You could sense a palpable kind of uh, unease uh, in the in the crowd, you know, at least in terms of the kind of the reaction that that got. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, it obviously kind of got at some of these simmering questions we've had in the primary about uh, Joe Biden's kind of uh, fitness, mental state, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, he's appeared kind of just unsteady on stage at times in terms of how he how he speaks and how he uh, presents himself. And so Castro, I think, whether it was intentional or not, uh, really, you know, kind of uh, poked that hornet's nest <laughs> in a way. Um, and in the immediate aftermath, you had some of the fellow candidates expressing some discomfort with, with Castro going in that direction. You had one of them, though, Cory Booker, saying, yeah, like, Castro, you know, raised a, a legitimate issue. Some <laughs> folks are, are really, you know, le- legitimately concerned if Joe Biden can, I think he said, carry the ball across the finish line. Right, so, right. you know, so there was a bit of a divided reaction <laughs> among Democrats, but definitely some deep discomfort with seeing Castro so pointedly question Biden's memory and therefore getting at some of those questions about his fitness. It's always the danger of political attacks is that the attacker takes you know, some of the some of the hit. Nobody defended Biden, I, I will say. I mean, a lot of candidates jumped in and said, you know, Castro shouldn't be acting like that and sort of right. attacked the attack, but didn't really attack the point of the attack. And and so, you know, Castro did some work that I think a lot of those candidates wanted done, but, you know, we're glad that he did it instead of, instead of them. And on the Beto thing, it was interesting, the way he presented that and the way he laid it out, a lot of the candidates were didn't want to get, you know, in the way of the obvious emotion behind it and sort of praised him. But at the same time, we're, you know, you could almost see him visibly walking away from, you know, we're not going to do mandatory uh, buybacks of, of firearms. I thought both of them were instructive in, in how you go about it, you know, breaching one of the lines in politics. You know, you, you asked the initial question of whether it was a moment they wanted or not. When, when it comes to Castro, you know, I think maybe he didn't want to find himself at the middle of this firestorm the next day for, you know, allegedly questioning Biden's fitness. But it was a broader discussion about Biden's health care plan. And basically, Castro was arguing, um, you know, my plan would be more inclusive. It would bring more people in more quickly, uh, work more aggressively to achieve the goal of universal health care. And that's a substantive discussion that Castro absolutely wants to have. And so I wouldn't say that whole exchange was a total loss for him at all. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been some commentary on this since the debate. But, you know, it was this moment where maybe if it had been, maybe could it have been punchier if he had just left it at like the first question right. where like, you know, what he was implying was pretty clear. But I think there there was also, you know, I was watching it and all I could think was how did he forget that to some extent black and brown people, you know, you're not sort of afforded the same leeway when it comes to being tough and confronting your opponent, right? It's like you're not tough, you're being mean kind of aspect of it. And it's a, you know, it's a maybe a double standard that he shouldn't have to deal with, but it feels like it almost like he forgot in that moment or he didn't care about it and if some of the fallout it's been interesting to see the commentary based on you know not really what political you know where on the political spectrum you are but sort of in how you kind of digest that idea of can you be seen as tough or are you just seen as mean and had someone else done it would it have read the same so you don't think it would have read as mean if Buttigieg had done it no I don't. I don't. I don't, so. I don't think I agree with that. I think. I think the attack on Biden read as an ageist attack. Well, it's, I mean, not, like From I our said, more senior I, men, men, <laughs> member of the panel. As, as the only one I, here with gray hair. I, I, I think say, it yeah. would have been more effective had he not pressed on it. So yeah. you know, I think that's what yeah. pushed it into sort of maybe being less murky for people. But mm-hmm. had it just been the first time he said it, and had it been left at that, I think it would have been really interesting to see what the fallout would have been yeah. compared to how much he did push it afterwards. Oh, yeah. I don't think there would have been any fallout if he had just said it once. I think it was the way he kind of 
badgered or stayed on it, yeah. it, you know, in a very firm and aggressive tone. Um, but yeah, I think if he had just left it at that one question, probably wouldn't be talking about it. I do think yeah. about like, was, you know, to the extent that he is trying to pull voters into his, you know, whatever percent he's at, does going after Biden like that win him? I mean, was he going after some of Biden's voters or was he just really trying to energize the people that are already on his side? Or just get a, who, a moment, Or right? get a moment you enough know, for himself sure. the next well, day. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, right. yeah, I agree with all of that. I think one of the things that you've seen Castro be more outspoken about is, you know, he believes he's the best, can, the best position candidate to reassemble what's people refer to as the Obama coalition, right. you know, young, diverse, um, kind of ascendant uh, voters. And, you know, to do that, he obviously needs to get Biden out of the way, which is obviously a Herculean right. task given where the two of them are currently at in the polls. Um, but I think that, you know, to, if he wants to successfully lay claim to, again, the, quote, Obama coalition, you got to handle Biden. Because right now, you know, at least in the eyes of people who are just tuning in, they probably equate by just they perceive Biden as right. the the inheritor of that coalition, again, for those who, who may just be tuning in and not studying necessarily all the positions. The first beneficiaries of something like that are going to be the people who are right behind Biden, right? The right. first people yeah. that overtake the front runner to the second place and the third place. And, you know, they might have been patting Castro on the back afterwards. Thanks for hitting him like that. Ultimately, the, the proof is in the numbers. You know, does Castro raise more money? Does he have more voters? Does he pull people to his side with that argument or with his argument, the larger argument about health care? Right. Uh, switching gears back to the other Texan, uh, we've seen this this hell yes line, I believe, appearing on T-shirts now. So um, firing up perhaps a base for Beto O'Rourke. We've also seen some backlash, notably a, a Trump tweet this morning. Uh, Dummy Beto, I believe, was the was the nickname he's now earned. Does he lose anything with this backlash on the right? It does, no, I think it helps him. It only helps him for him to continue to be at the center of the conversation, whether it's fellow Democrats expressing unease with the idea or Republicans attacking him over it, especially if it's the yeah. president attacking him over it. They already got a fundraising email off this morning off of that tweet. Um, and so for him personally, it's all good. <laughs> um, you know, but it certainly upends the gun debate in other ways. Um, you know, the point that other Democrats, including Pete, his, his, one of his presidential rivals, Pete Buttigieg, you know, has made is that, you know, by taking this relatively extreme position uh, on gun control, that could endanger, you know, a rare chance at bipartisan compromise in Congress. Now, a lot of people, including myself, are skeptical that we are actually at that point in right. Congress. Uh, but that's the argument that- What is this hearing, rare compromise right? you exactly. speak of? <laughs> and, and, you know, you point out the Republican reaction and this was reflected in the Trump tweet this morning, you know, they've been more than happy to elevate O'Rourke and try to make him basically the face of the Democratic Party when it comes to guns, right. uh, because it is uh, such a, you know, a, a, you know, a aggressive position. Um, and they've used his, they basically scapegoated him, whether it's Trump this morning or John Cornyn yesterday, scapegoated him in this idea for making it more difficult to have a, you know, rational discussion in Congress on combating gun violence. Again, I'm very skeptical that, you know, that was something that was even really there in the first place, but he's given them kind of a political out, um, you know, in terms of where these negotiations may or may not be at in Congress, they can just point to him and say, well, all Democrats want to take away guns. Why are we even negotiating with them? Let's, you know, we're not going to do anything in response to these shootings. It just but. feels like the, the some of the voters that are on the line with this sort of issue, like if you think about Texas, the white suburban women that may or may not be moved by this in combination with, you know, some of the immigration policy that we've seen, it just feels like those voters would sort of be able to see 
through some of that. I, I, I don't know how much that argument holds in the long run, and we're so far away from 2020, first of all, but right. the idea that they can use this as a reason to not do anything feels a, pretty thin, especially when it oh, comes absolutely. to the voters that are on yeah, the line. it's definitely thin. And, you know, O'Rourke's campaign and other Democrats who support the idea have pointed out that what limited polling has been done so far on this idea, mandatory buybacks for assault weapons, it hasn't been as unpopular of an idea as Republicans make it out to be. There was a uh, ABC News Washington Post poll last week that said 52% of Americans, uh, you know, approve of it, basically. Um, and there was a previous poll where the margin was, was uh, the number was a little smaller, but still more approved than disapproved of the idea. So, I mean, public opinion, I think, you know, is... is you know, has has been there on some of these gun control ideas for a long time on something like universal background checks, for example. But I think it's also uh, beginning to evolve too on some of the more aggressive measures. I'm sort I'm sort of curious about you know Trump picking out O'Rourke on guns because Trump earlier picked out O'Rourke on immigration. He seems to like him as a foil. You know, Absolutely. he went to El Paso yeah. and did a rally. They did rallies across the street from each other, mm -hmm. and you know, before the shooting in El Paso, now he's sort of picking him out of the pack and and shooting at him. I, you know seems to like him as a foil, and I don't, you know, right. I, I'd, I'd love to see what's in their polling about that. You know, one other thing about this that, that um, Dan Patrick pointed out and that, you know, I, I think some people probably thought of during the debate, when O'Rourke did this, it was like he finally slammed the door on a Senate race. People thought, everybody who was sort of planning on, you know, maybe O'Rourke will drop out of this and run against John Cornyn in Texas. I think a lot of those Democrats just closed their notebook and put him away, maybe next time. Yeah, how different is this position from where he was during the Senate race? And do we attribute that shift to the mass shooting in his hometown of El Paso? Yeah, so obviously this is a stark shift from what he said during the U.S. Senate race when he supported an assault weapons ban, but would always emphatically follow, up, follow it up by telling Texas voters, don't worry, don't want to take away your guns. Right. If you own an assault weapon, if you own an AR-15, keep it, continue to use it responsibly. I'm, I'm literally quoting this verbatim because I heard it so many times on the campaign trail. Right. Um, so now you have him uh, on the other end, is, you know, kind of on the other, other side of that saying, hell yes, I want to take away your, your assault weapons. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a stark shift and he's chalked it up to, to El Paso. He's, you know, said that El Paso changed a lot for him and made him realize that, um, you know, an assault weapons, just simply an assault weapons ban uh, is not far enough. It's not enough to leave some of these weapons still on, on the street. So yeah, no doubt a, a total shift that he's explained, you know, by, by the El Paso shooting. So this is a conversation, of course, that's going on at the state level after two mass shootings in the month of August. Um, yesterday was the first meeting of a new committee called the Mass Violence Prevention and Community Safety Committee. Um, Ross, what do we know about what happened at that meeting and kind of where this debate is in the state of Texas? You know, I think a lot of people in politics on the Republican and on the Democratic side in Texas are trying to figure out what to do with this. They had a bunch of roundtables after the shootings in Sutherland Springs and Santa Fe High School and came up with a list of things that mostly revolved around mental health issues and around architecture, around, you know, how do you get into a school? How do you maneuver once you're in a school? All those kinds of things. And stayed away from, for the most part, anything having to do with the regulation of guns. The thing that was kind of on the the borderline at that time was the idea of red flag laws where someone who's deemed to be a danger to themselves or to other people can, uh, by a judicial order after a hearing, have their guns taken away from them. The governor um, brought that up, was shouted down very quickly or shut down very quickly by the lieutenant governor who said it's not going anywhere in the Senate, and they didn't go there. And then you go through a legislative session, they passed some of the things they talked about, they came out, there was a shooting in El Paso, there's a shooting in Odessa, and now we're talking about a lot of the same things again. 
So I think part of this is well-trod ground. You know, the, um, the legislators who are on this committee are coming back in and looking at it, and they have a whole pile of bills from Democrats that had to do with gun control or, or you know, regulations around use and purchase and, you know, um, all of those things about guns that didn't pass. So that's sort of the pocket of things they could do, but they've also got a list of things that, you know, their voters are telling them not to do. And in the Republican Party, the Second Amendment is, you know, one of those third rail issues that you have to be very careful. The, the guy who's um, gone out a little bit on a limb is Dan Patrick. Uh, the lieutenant governor came out and said, maybe we should, in fact, expand background checks to include stranger-to-stranger -stranger sales. These are sales of guns between individuals who don't know each other. We're not going to touch sales, he says, between family members and friends and things like that, but the stranger-to-stranger -stranger thing uh, is a loophole we need to close. Apparently, the loophole the Odessa shooter used to obtain a weapon, um, and the blowback has been immediate. I'm not sure it's necessarily negative for the lieutenant governor, uh, but it's, you know, the NRA and gun owners of America and Second Amendment advocates all over the state, you know, raising hell about it. Right, and we have almost a role reversal from where we were on the red flag laws where the governor signaled kind of an openness to it and Lieutenant Governor made clear that he was not open to it. But here we have, um, after Dan Patrick sort of towing the line uh, that many sort of on his right flank would be surprised and upset to see him tow, the governor um, in a long report suggests that the legislature look at a voluntary background check um, for those stranger-to-stranger -stranger gun sales. Were we surprised to see that dynamic sort of shift? I wasn't shocked that Abbott clearly tried to find some middle ground, <laughs> uh, if you want to call that middle ground, um, given the hell that Patrick caught for that. Um, it wasn't too surprising. Um, but I, I'm still interested in how this all works in practice, if a legislative proposal like that were to go through. Yeah, the, you know, the best place for a governor to be on any issue that's controversial, you know, guns clearly won, but, you know, on any issue is, well, let's see what the legislature sends to me, right? And then you don't have to, you know, catch the arrows on this thing and, and, and be the person that's getting yelled at. And if, and if Dan Patrick has already stepped out there and volunteered to be the crash test dummy on this one, there's no reason to get between him and a car. Right. And speaking of that uh, crash test, I guess, <laughs> I think we saw a version of that play out on Twitter yesterday. Some of us uh, tech legends were watching this play out between Michael Quinn Sullivan, the head of Empower Texans, a, a Tea Party group, typically aligned with Patrick, sort of um, sniping back and forth with the lieutenant governor on this and, you know, getting starting with guns, but ending up somewhere else. Can you catch us up? Yeah, he basically came out and said, you know, you're um, you're a traitor to the Second Amendment cause, essentially. Um, and Patrick replied, you know, no, I'm not. You should pay attention to it. And by the way, you should release the tape. You're destroying... ETW. Right. Yeah. It, uh, I, you know, you can say it right out, you know. Uh, <laughs> you're destroying the Republican Party. And then it started, you know, devolved into, you know, one set of threads was about Second right. Amendment. The other set of threads was about, you know, whether this was destroying the Republican Party. And, you know, the the unspoken thing was everybody in town, I guess everybody in the state started roasting popcorn. Right. I thought it was interesting too. It got it understandably got a little lost in the whole release the tape thing. But what Patrick was disputing, which is something I've seen from some on the right, which was a mischaracterization of what he's proposing as as effectively universal background checks, right. extending them not just to those stranger to stranger sales, uh, but also to family transfers as they're known. And Patrick hasn't advocated for that. And so I think you're trying to set the record straight on that. Understandably right. so. Um, 
got a little lost, obviously, with the, the BT dubs, uh, <laughs> you know, note at the end. But I thought that that was interesting because you've seen a little bit on the right of the, the what he's proposing being a, mischaracterized as a blanket universal right. background check proposal. When at least based on my understanding of what he said, it's not that. So we have these um, select committees meeting during the interim. We have these debates playing out on Twitter. We had um, a series of executive orders recently from the governor. What all is possible on this issue um, until and unless the legislature reconvenes? You know, every time something like this happens, you have to watch public opinion. And, you know, public opinion changes on this, then the people that represent them will change. I mean, if the public clearly moves on this, particularly Republican voters move on this, then you'll see Republican politicians begin to moderate or change their positions. Happens on other things, right? It's happening on pot, you know, over the last four or five cycles. Um, but there is also, after these shootings, a period of outrage and high public attention that fades as other issues come up. And so as you get closer to uh, filing deadlines for office in Texas in December and then the primaries in March, and then on through the general election in November of next year, you know, you kind of have to ask what's the public going to be paying attention to and has the public changed its position on an issue as touchy as this one strongly enough and consistently enough for the, for the politicians to move. And if, they, if, they, if the public doesn't do that and the politicians haven't moved, then you'll get the same result you've been getting. But I do wonder if Dan Patrick has gone out on such a limb on this. I mean, does it then end up coming back to bite him if he doesn't do anything on it? Right. I mean, you know, you could sort of say, well, public opinion changed, the votes weren't there, but he still went out on a limb to say it, and it's just sort of setting yourself up to be held accountable for what you said. Right. This is the, you know, someone who's widely considered to be the most conservative statewide elected official in Texas, openly telling the Dallas Morning News, you know, I will defy the NRA on this issue. That's a, a surprising thing to hear. The chairman of the president's reelection campaign in Texas, too, clearly yeah. has a, a direct line to right. the White House or the campaign. So if you if you follow Patrick's lead on this, you know, you make a change to, you know, our laws around guns that is not specifically a regulation of, you know, gun ownership. It's a regulation of how you transact guns. It's an extension of a law that's already in place. It's pinned to a, you know, a terrible shooting in Odessa and it gives Republicans cover to say, you know, we did something after those shootings. If you if you follow Patrick's lead and you don't have to get into this whole pile of Democratic bills that's over here that didn't pass during the legislative session, you can say, well, we did this. Let's see how it goes. I was got just a quick thing just because I'm a special elections guy and there's a special <laughs> election coming up uh, on November 5th for J Republican John Zerwas's seat in, in the Houston suburbs in Fort Bend County. It's really interesting, too. There's one Democratic candidate, six Republicans, and, and gun violence has already been a, a pretty big issue in the race, I would say. Mm -hmm. The Democrat is running unapologetically on combating gun violence. Now, she doesn't support like a mandatory buyback pro program, uh, for example, uh, but she talks about red flag laws, talks about universal background checks. And even one of the Republican candidates I've seen, uh, her name is Anna Allred, she's running Facebook ads um, that talk about stopping the rise of domestic terrorism, keeping guns out of the hands of criminals. And so it'll be interesting to see, because that, that's a, a somewhat flippable district for Democrats. It could be a battleground. It'll be it's going to be very interesting to see as we get closer to that election yeah. date how both sides are talking about guns. They're, they're already doing it. I imagine they're going to sharpen their message a little more as we get closer. All right. Well, continue to follow our special elections guy. <laughs> uh, you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> Before our next topic, I'd like to thank a few more TribCast sponsors. 
Help us learn more about what makes Texans tick, what keeps you moving, and what keeps you here by sharing your own hashtag Texansense story at texastribune.org slash Texansense, hashtag Texansense presented by Texas A&M University. And at Entergy Texas, we know our customers depend on us to keep the lights on and their lives moving. So we're investing to meet Texas's growing needs by upgrading equipment to increase reliability and implementing new technology to prevent outages. More at EntergyTexas.com slash Bright Future. And in politics, people often tell you not to get lost in the weeds. But The Weeds by Vox is a podcast for people who love the weeds. Because that's where politics becomes policy, the stuff that shapes your life and the lives of the people you care about. During the Texas Tribune Festival next week, The Weeds will be live in Austin with Matt Iglesias, Dara Lind, and Jane Coaston. So if you're the kind of person who likes to dive deep into the weeds or you just want to keep up with the current political landscape, this show is for you. Subscribe to The Weeds for free right now and make sure you don't miss The Weeds special episode live from Texas landing in your podcast feed on October 1st. Find The Weeds in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes automatically from Vox and the Vox Media Podcast Network. All right, Alexa, shifting gears. <laughs> Catch your breath there. <laughs> We wrote a story this week about Crystal Mason, a Fort Worth woman who's been sentenced to five years for illegally voting. But at a hearing last week, her appeal's main argument from her lawyers was that she didn't actually vote at all. Can you explain how we got there? Yeah, I mean, there's this thing called in Texas, there's this thing in Texas called provisional voting or provisional balloting that not a lot of people know about and that doesn't often sort of come into play in elections because the votes are hardly ever counted. But it's basically this sort of electoral safe harbor where if there's a question about your eligibility, either because the local election admins forgot to add you to the rolls or made a mistake in doing it or because you showed up at the wrong voting precinct or there's any other question, you can cast this ballot. It's sort of a placeholder. The election administrators will then examine it after an election and decide whether they accept it or reject it. And that is what Crystal Mason did in 2016 um, after she had been released from federal prison for a tax fraud uh, conviction. She was on what is called federal supervised release um, that under Texas law uh, apparently made her ineligible to be able to vote. There are some questions about whether that, you know, her lawyer sort of are now challenging that as well. But the in the eyes of the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office, this made her ineligible, making her ballot an in an, her ballot a proof of illegal voting, even though it wasn't ultimately counted. And that is how Emma ended up in an appeals court in <laughs> Fort Worth last week. Um, you know, as this sort of case moves forward, it's really more than just the Mason case, as we wrote about. It's about provisional balloting and the role that that plays and whether it is actually sort of this safe harbor that people have long seen it to be. And of course, it sort of falls within this like ongoing voter fraud crackdown from the state's Republicans, including the Attorney General uh, Ken Paxton, especially after, you know, a series of losses on that front. I missed a detail in this story, and it might have been in there, so forgive me. Did she have a voter registration card? Do they not cancel your voter registration when you go to prison? She was not on the rolls, and that's why she cast a provisional ballot. She okay. showed up, she wasn't on the rolls, and they said, well, you can cast a provisional ballot like other people who aren't on the rolls when they show up to vote. And okay. that's how she got into the ballot. So if I were not someone who had been convicted or been in prison, but I had never registered to vote, and I went in and voted, they would count me as a provisional voter until they checked to find out that I wasn't registered to vote. 
And that wouldn't be illegal for me to do that. They would ask you to cast a provisional ballot. And it's right. currently a matter of legal dispute as to whether casting a provisional ballot that's rejected is the same as the act of voting. Okay. Okay. Um, but you would have that option available to you. And then ultimately they would reject it. So what the prosecutors are saying in this case is that we're not trying to prosecute people who are making genuine mistakes, right? This case kind of, kind of turns on whether she was intending to break the law by casting this ballot. Um, but Alexa, w what we understand, at least from her lawyers, is that this is unprecedented, right? Can you talk about kind of other voter fraud prosecutions we're aware of in Texas? Yeah, I mean, you know, this prosecution is happening against the backdrop of thousands and thousands of provisional ballots that are cast in Texas every year. Most of them are rejected, most of them because those individuals are not registered to vote in the state. So the Ross Ramsey scenario here. Right. Um, so what we're calling that? Is yeah, that's what we're calling it. <laughs> but, you know, the... the the Mason prosecution is coming just a couple of years after the prosecution of Rosa Maria Ortega, who is also from the Tarrant County area and was prosecuted for voter fraud. I think the actual charge was illegal voting after she had registered to vote in Dallas County, tried to register in Tarrant County, and she wasn't actually a citizen, so she was not eligible, but she thought she was because she had been allowed to get on the rolls in Dallas County, ended up actually voting twice for Ken Paxton, um, ironically. And that ended up being a case that the AG's office sort of hailed as proof of, you know, this is why our voter fraud crackdown is important. We're going to prosecute these, you know, to the furthest extent possible. And, you know, the idea, there's there's something that Rosemarie Ortega and Crystal Mason have in common, and it's that they are both women of color. Right. And you can't really divorce that from, you know, the larger narrative and landscape of the disenfranchisement of voters of color in Texas. And so you have all these like threads that are tangled up while at the same time we still don't have proof that illegal voting and voter fraud is as widespread as people like Ken Paxton and Greg Abbott claim it is. And so there is this fear among voting rights advocates that these cases are now sort of being held up as examples. Uh, maybe not so that people don't necessarily do the same thing, but that people are too scared and confused about the process that they won't even try to vote. Right. And the provisional votes, I mean, this sort of goes, you know, this is a little bit around the corner, but, you know, provisional votes only count in close races. And as you get closer and closer races, the chances that you'll have to go into the provisional vote bucket, the only time they count them is when there are enough votes over in the bucket to change the outcome. Right. The, so if you get closer and closer elections, like say we had in 2018, you know, the, the, prospect of counting provisional votes rises and the, you know, I guess the contests over the, the quality of those votes and, and who's voting and all of those kinds of things becomes actually consequential. I mean, you had three to more or, than just the people that are getting thrown in jail. alone, you had, what, three or four state house races or provisional votes votes came into play. At least right. like one candidate said, I wanted to wait and see if they would make up the difference. Yeah. Right. Yeah, these and these they, are in small numbers that we're talking about. In Tarrant County, which is one of the larger counties in Texas, in 2016, there were 4,500 provisional ballots counted. So in a, in a close you know race for the state house, that could... Right. Or county commissioner. I mean, any countywide race, right? Well, and those close races that you're talking about, Patrick, a, a lot of them are in the North Texas area. Right. And that is where we've seen, you know, at least in the Tarrant County uh, District Attorney's Office, sort of a willingness to go after some of these prosecutions that other district attorneys just haven't, you know, either prioritized or don't seem to think they're as clear-cut cases maybe as the DA's office seems to think in Tarrant County. 
All right, really quickly, uh, Patrick, we had a retirement last week in the Texas Senate's Democratic Caucus. Who are we saying goodbye to? And can you tell us yet who we will be saying hello to in that seat? Well, the retiree is State Senator Jose Rodriguez, <laughs> Democrat from El Paso. Uh, He's going to talk slow so he didn't have to get to the second part. Pretty quickly, uh, Cesar Blanco, a uh, state representative, another Democrat from El Paso, emerged as a potential candidate for the seat. Um, and with, I think, within, the, I think, the span of three days after Rodriguez announced his retirement, Blanco got into the race. Um, he has the support of almost the entire uh, El Paso House delegation, another state rep in the Senate district, and right now looks like the front runner. Um, but it is a state Senate district in a pretty solidly Democratic area. Wouldn't be surprised if there were more candidates. Um, right. It seems like dominoes are always falling in uh, El Paso Democratic <laughs> politics. Um, and so for now, uh, Blanco looks like the favorite. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if you saw uh, at least another prominent name in that race or another you know, somewhat credible candidate. Right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one as well. That's all the time we have. Thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to Texas Southern, DHR Health, Texas A&M University, Entergy, and Vox, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Ross, Patrick, Alexa, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emma. Thanks for listening. Do